Over the last few years, we have been talking a lot in our culture about justice. Uh, I have mentioned it a few times uh, myself. The conversations that we've had about justice have not always been helpful, uh, but the topic is, is present. It's, it's present everywhere. A couple of weeks ago, some prominent uh, evangelicals, some prominent conservative evangelicals released a statement. It's called the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. It was an attempt to uh, shape this conversation that we've been having uh, in biblical terms. Some people like the statement. Some people have argued about it. Well, uh, there was another statement that was released by Union Seminary. Union Seminary is in New York City. It's been around for a couple hundred years, almost 200 years. And uh, here are some pieces of the Union Seminary statement that I want to read to you this morning. I want to read it to you because I'm interested in your reaction. I'm interested in what you think about what they say under these uh, headings, these various headings. So here's what they said under the heading Scripture. While divinely inspired, we deny that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's. So here's the heading under their understanding of the gospel. We affirm that the gospel is revealed through Jesus and that liberation was central to Christ's mission. In his own life, however, Jesus demonstrated that works living justly in the world are every bit as foundational to the gospel as faith. They cannot be separated. Uh, Here's what they say about salvation. We deny that salvation is only found through Christianity, that God's grace is exclusive to any single faith or religion. Moreover, in God's eyes, there is no difference in spiritual value or worth between those who are in Christ and those who aren't. Uh, Just a couple more here. Sexuality and marriage. We affirm science and theories confirmation that God created humans to live into various sexual orientations and genders. The spectrum of human sexual experience attests to God's expansive love. We deny that any love that does no harm should be rejected. Uh, One more here is racism. We affirm that racism is a sin which has long badly corrupted Christians and caused people to justify some of history's worst atrocities in Christ's name. Moreover, we affirm that white evangelicalism has done much to elevate one ethnic group and subjugate another. So, what do you think about this here? Uh, On the one hand, some of you will notice differences between this statement and our own convictions as a congregation. So for the last couple months, we have been walking through our doctrinal statement, and um, there are some definite differences between this and what we believe. On the other hand, as I read it, it might have dawned on you that this statement summarizes the sort of openness and tolerance and progressiveness that fits really well with our current cultural mood. No one who has written this or subscribed to this would be accused of being bigoted or hateful. Uh, This doesn't seem to match what we believe, but it's certainly a popular statement. So here are two competing visions for what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. One seems to pass the truth test, at least the truth as we have taught it and continue to teach it, but the other seems to pass the love test, at least in the way that our culture defines love. It it fits, it matches conventional wisdom. So what do we do here? 
Some of you, when I read that statement, it was like reading, a, a, like a, a waving a red flag in front of a bull. It makes you want to jump up and argue and debate and, and contest and disprove what you think is this sentimental claptrap. That's what you want to do. But there are others who really already just don't like the adversarial mood that I have already started. Does following Jesus really mean that we have to fight all the time with people who disagree with us? Can we talk about something else? If you can enter into, just for a moment, the trouble that might be caused in someone's mind by these competing visions of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully, if you can enter into that confusion about these different visions, uh, then I think you're ready to begin reading the letters that the Apostle John penned to followers of Jesus who lived in modern Turkey, uh, the Romans called it Asia, about 1950 years ago. Today, we're going to begin a four or five-month study of the letters of John. And for a moment, you can look at this beautiful sign behind me, and ooh and ah, isn't that so nice? Pastor Scott made that for us, so it's uh, ready for our use. We're going to start talking about John's letters, and today I want to introduce them. Now, it's been some time since I have done the sort of introductory work that we're going to do this morning. Uh, the last time we did this, we, the last book we studied was First and Second Samuel, and we started that on January 15th in 2017. So uh, some of you have come to the church and joined it without ever hearing one of these talks that I'm going to give this morning. This is going to be a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. The emphasis is a little bit more on information than on application. I want to orient you to these letters. I want you to get ready to read them really well. And I want to show you what we're going to find in them when we read them. Now, much of the information that we're going to talk about here is summarized in uh, this green sheet that's in your bulletin. There's two sides to it. There's some notes for you to take, uh, room to take a few notes, not much space. And on the other hand, there's this handy-dandy chart of the gospel, uh, the epistle of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. And um, basically, we're going to talk about everything that is on this uh, paper. We're going to talk about the author, the recipients, the purpose, the structure of, of the letters of John. So let's orient ourselves to these books. If you have a Bible, take it and turn them back to 1 John, if you wouldn't mind. We were there a few minutes ago, and I want you to turn there with me again. Uh, these little letters of John are right at the end of the New Testament. So in your Bible, your Bible is divided into two large sections. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. There's 66 individual books total. And the first part, the Old Testament, there's 39 books there. And they contain law and poems and proverbs and, and sermons. And, and they, were, they, they described God's relationship with the nation of Israel. Uh, and uh, we love to read the Old Testament. We spend a lot of time there. Then the New Testament starts with the life of Jesus, his birth, and then his life, and the beginning of the church. And then the rest of the New Testament is letters that the apostles wrote to those churches that they started. And John is one, a first, second, and third John are one of those uh, series of letters. And it's right towards the end, there's only Jude and Revelation left in the New Testament after them. So for the next several weeks, you can walk into church and just open to the end, because that's where we're going to be uh, for quite some time. One of the most helpful things to, to know when you pick up a book of the Bible is who wrote this book or whose, whose uh, name shall we ascribe to this book as an author. 
It's a challenge when it comes to these three letters because they never identify the author. There's nowhere in the books where they say this is by John. Uh, They're titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but the text itself doesn't identify the author, which means that the Holy Spirit, God does not believe we need to know the name in order to understand the book. If you really needed to know the author, it would be in the text itself, but it's not there. Uh, But there's a little bit of of, of signs of the author. Look at, um, uh, let's go to 2nd John. Second John starts just like every other uh, letter that we're very familiar with, Paul's style. Look, he starts uh, with um, uh, identifying the author. So Second John 1 says, The elder, then there's the recipient, to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. And there's the blessing. We're familiar with this. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, from Jesus Christ the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. So we're familiar with that form. form. And then Third John starts pretty similar, just across the page or on the next page. Starts again identifying the author, the elder, who's the recipient, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And then a blessing. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. But there's no greeting like this in 1 John at all. So if we go back to 1 John, it, it just starts very simply, that which was from the beginning, that's not simple, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. It's a very different beginning. It's a very different beginning from all the other letters that we read in the New Testament. He doesn't begin this way because he doesn't know who's going to read this letter. This is not a generic letter that he just wrote for anybody to read. It's very clear that he knows who's going to read it. You, you can see that because one of his favorite things to call them is dear children. And he does it a lot. So look at chapter 2, verse 1, how it begins. It says, my dear children. And then 2, verse 18, dear children. Then chapter 3, verse 7, dear children. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he changes it up a little bit. Dear friends. Dear children, dear children, dear children. He knows them, he loves them, and he's writing to them. He starts in this odd way, though. Why? Well... I think the author began unusually like this because two possibilities. One, maybe this letter was meant to be read by a large group of people. It's supposed to be circulated around and a lot of people were supposed to read it. And then I wonder if the author here is intentionally mimicking the gospel of John. Remember how John begins? In the beginning was the word. And then he starts John, 1 John 1.1 1, 1, that which was from the beginning. I think he's intentionally mimicking that. This letter has the same source in the gospel. Um, and by saying that, I have already tipped my hand. I'm not going to spend any time this morning defending this, but I believe, even though it's not in the exact text of the, of the letter, these letters, that I think that the traditional longstanding view is correct, that these three books were written by John, the beloved apostle. So John, the apostle, he wrote the gospel according to John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation, those five books. 
Let's talk about John for just a few minutes. What do we know about him? A lot, actually. Uh, John was a native of Bethsaida, which is one of the fishing towns on the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman by trade. By all appearances, he was quite a successful fisherman. Uh, it was a family business. He worked with his father and his brother, and he had partners, and he had employees. So this was a pretty big operation. Uh, he, he had enough notoriety that he knew the high priest in Jerusalem and had a little bit of pull with him. So John was a uh, not unsubstantial person in Bethsaida. He had an older brother. His older brother's name was James. Uh, and James was also one of the disciples of the Lord. He, James was the first apostle to be martyred in the book of Acts. As best I can tell, I'm pretty sure about this, John was a cousin of Jesus. That is, John's mother, Salome, was Mary's sister. So John and Jesus were cousins. And he was probably, this tradition, probably the youngest of all the disciples. It's interesting, when you read the Gospels, John goes through a startling transformation in, this, uh, in these books. For example, when Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem one day, uh, in Luke chapter 9, they're going to Jerusalem and they want to go through some Samaritan villages. Jesus does. And the Samaritan villages say, no way, you can't come. We don't want you to come. So James and John respond patiently and kindly. <laughs> As Luke 9.54 says, look what, how they responded. They said, when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call on fire from heaven to destroy them? Uh, no. Uh, this is their response, though, to these Samaritans. Let's call on fire. Um, no, the, the New Testament, no wonder the New Testament calls them sons of thunder. Uh, it was these same brothers who sent their mother, Jesus' aunt, to, give them, to, to ask Jesus to, in his kingdom, give them the best seats. Let us sit one on your right hand and one on your left hand in the kingdom of heaven. They wanted the most prominent roles in the kingdom of heaven next to Jesus. So they were ambitious. It's striking in light of those things uh, that, uh, and how, how John reacted to the Samaritans and his own ambition that he is the only one of the gospel writers who tells us about that conversation that Jesus had with that Samaritan woman. Isn't it interesting? He's the one who wants to call down fire from heaven and then he writes this book where he talks about this dear woman that, that the Lord Jesus met and how he was so tender and kind to her. And then uh, this son of thunder, John, becomes the apostle of love. John wrote more about love, our love for God, God's love for us, our call to love one another. He wrote about, more that, more, he wrote that, about that more than anybody else in the New Testament. Now I mention that this morning because I want to encourage you, because some of you are thunderous people. That or some of you are raising thunderous children. If you have a toddler, every toddler is thunderous as far as I can tell. But, but for some, it sticks, right? This quick to, to get angry, this um, quick to seek vengeance, this ambition that is centered on, on yourself. You have thunderous children that you are raising. What changed John's life was his contact with the Lord Jesus. We read about that in First John uh, chapter 1. He, I've seen Jesus. I was with him. I talked to him. I heard him. I touched him. I've seen him. 
And then in John, in his gospel, in John chapter 1, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. He's the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. He's full of grace and truth. John 1.16, he said, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. It was contact with the Lord Jesus that changed John's life, that turned him from a son of thunder to the apostle of love. The goal of following Jesus is not to make strong people weak or to make brave people meek. The goal of, of, of following the Lord Jesus is to make take strong people who use their strength to serve themselves to make them people who use their strength to serve others who are courageous for a cause beyond their own ambitions that's the goal and it it comes about through contact with the lord jesus john eventually became known as he wrote about in his gospel the disciple that jesus loved on earth he was jesus closest friend Keep setting Christ before your thunderous son. Set him before your thunderous daughter. God's goal for all people is that by the power of the Holy Spirit and through his word, we would all love the son like God loves the son. This is one of the ways I pray for myself. I pray that God would work in my life so that I would love the Lord Jesus the way the Father loves the Lord Jesus. Pray that for your kids. Set Jesus before them. That is what changes thunderous people. Now, John the Apostle, he appears in every book, uh, he appears in the Gospels, and he appears early in the book of Acts, but then he fades from view. Peter takes over preeminence, and then Peter gives way to Paul. There's a lot of years that we don't know about John, what he was doing, uh, where he was. He was exiled to the island of Patmos for a while, we know that because he wrote the book of Revelation there. The tradition is very strong that John ended his life in Ephesus. I've never been to Ephesus. I'm not sure if it's still there. Some of you may have been there. But at one point in time, there were two locations that were vying to be known as John's tomb. He's only buried in one, but they were selling T-shirts outside of both places. And um, so the tradition is very strong. He spent the last years of his life in Ephesus. He lived a very long life. He may have lived to the 90s, the 80-90s, into his 90s. So that's John, the author of this book, these books. Let's talk about the recipients of the letter, of these letters. Uh, again, Second John and Third John give us more information. Second John was written to this lady, this chosen lady, which may be shorthand for a church, a particular congregation. Um, and then Third John is written to a friend of his by the name of Gaius, 1 John, though, appears to be written for the churches in and around Ephesus. Maybe the same congregations are addressed in the book of Revelation, perhaps. John was not the first apostle to bring the gospel to this region, again called Asia by the Romans. We call it Turkey now. Um, and, and, and actually, it wasn't Paul who brought the gospel first, but Paul was there, and it was under his influence that the church really grew and prospered in that region. Paul was in Ephesus from A.D. 52 to 55 or so. And look what Acts 19.10 says about his ministry in Ephesus. What happened when he was there? While he was there, this went on for two years, his ministry. Actually, three total, but uh, narrative says two more years. Uh, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's astounding. 
Three years, Paul was there, and Ephesus was his headquarters, this great gospel work in this region of Asia. But from the beginning, there were problems. These churches were plagued by false teaching. The whole book of Colossians was written to a church in this region that had, was plagued with a, a problem. And then look what Paul said to the elders. In Acts 20, Paul's preaching to the Ephesian elders, and he says, Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And then the problem was so bad that toward the end of his life in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote this, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. It's bad. It's really bad. Paul works to plant these churches, and they've just been overrun by this false teaching. I know that some of you really dislike conflict, that, that you don't like it uh, uh, when we, we have disagreements in the church about things and we talk about how we disagree with other people who, who name the name of Christ. But this is the way it has always been. The church has always had to be vigilant. It's always been engaged in some form of combat. If you like that combat too much, you probably have a problem. It's not a good sign. But from the beginning, there were false teachers. There were always men and women preaching alternates to the teachings of the apostles. There's always been the need for hard thinking and careful reasoning and for uh, the collection of arguments. There's always been the need for this defense of the faith. There's always been challenges, even from the beginning. Uh, This week I read a sermon uh, from an African-American preacher. His name was Lemuel Haynes. Lemuel Haynes served in the Continental Army. He was a Minuteman, actually. And then after the war, he was ordained in 1785, and he pastored a church in Rutland, Vermont, for 30 years. Uh, it was uh, notable. He's one of the first African-Americans to be ordained in the United States, the first one to be given a master's degree from a college. And he, founded, uh, he pastored a predominantly Caucasian congregation up there in Vermont. And he was preaching in 1791. He was preaching an ordination sermon, and he said this, his opening line, Nothing is more evident than that men are prejudiced against the gospel. Nothing is more evident than that men are prejudiced against the gospel. This is the plainest statement you can make. People don't like the gospel. People are opposed to the gospel. It was that way from the beginning, and it's that way continuously. This is why Jude wrote uh, his letter in the book of Jude. He starts, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. I wish we had the book that Jude wanted to write. Jude says, you know, I was going to write you a letter about the gospel. I'd love to read that book. But instead he said, you know, but I just have to tell you, you have got to stand up for the truth. The apostles teach you, you've got to do that. Uh, Now, according to church historian F.F. Bruce, I don't know how he knows this, but F.F. Bruce is not to be dismissed easily. Um, uh, He he doesn't refer to this in the Bible, but uh, he proposes that after Paul had been executed, that the church in Ephesus and in Asia kind of stabilized a little bit. And the reason he thinks that is because of an influx of Palestinian Christians. So what happened in uh, AD 66, the Romans invaded Palestine, there was a great war, and, and a lot of people fled the region, just like now. How many Syrian refugees have fled into Europe? 
While there were Christians that were in that part of the world, they were fleeing the war, and John was among them. He fled and ended up in Ephesus. And the presence of those Christians was somewhat stabilizing, but it didn't last, and hence John had to write his letters. This leads me to the occasion for these letters. John wrote these letters in order to help the believers respond to another wave of false teaching. As best we can tell by reading from the opposite side of 1 John back, this false teaching had some roots in Greek philosophy. And at its heart was the denial of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that he's the second person of the Trinity incarnate, that, that um, in the womb of Mary he took to himself a human nature, and he's truly God and truly man, two natures united in one person. That's what we believe. The concept of the incarnation would have been, though, repugnant to Greek men and women because they think that the body, they thought that the body was a trap, a prison, that matter is evil, that true spirituality has to do with transcending the body, that the, that the body is, is, is a trap and you've got, the goal is to be freed from it. So the idea that God would become human was disgusting to them. It was horrifying. Um, Usain Bolt is, of course, the fastest man alive at this point in time. He can run. You've seen him run. Um, Imagine if someone decided sometime that it would be just great to put him in a body cast. That would be wonderful. We'd love to see Usain Bolt in a body cast. And you'd look at that and you'd say, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you ruin such a great potential? He's the fastest man on earth. Why would you bind him up like that? That's terrible. Well... That's what uh, Greeks would say about the incarnation. Why would, why would the God of heaven take to himself human flesh, this, this trap, this prison? Why would you do that? There was a teacher uh, in this region who was prominent during John's day. His name was Serinthus. And Serinthus believed that uh, the Christ was some sort of lesser, lesser divine being and, and when Jesus of Nazareth was baptized, the Christ came upon Jesus. And, and that's when, when God the Father said, this is my son. And the Christ was there with Jesus through his ministry, empowering his ministry. And, and then when Jesus of Nazareth was hanging on the cross, the Christ left him. Hence, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And So that the Christ himself was never really incarnate, and he never really suffered, and he never really died, he never really was resurrected. And and John is addressing people who believe something, probably something very similar to that. Look at 1 John chapter 4. You can see this, that he has this in mind. He says in 1 John 4, 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have already heard is coming and even now already is in the world. Now follow me here. Part of this teaching, of uh, this false teaching, comes from the fact that it's, it's secretive knowledge beyond the basics of the apostles. And, and they're arguing that real spirituality, true spirituality, is to know these spiritual mysteries. And because of that, there was no need really to talk about sin. 
that it didn't really matter much what you did with your body. You need the knowledge to make you a spiritual person. And because they had this secret knowledge, they tended to be arrogant, loveless people. So this is a message that had invaded the church. There was, they had the message that there is no sin, no Savior, and no true community. You can imagine how this might rile an apostle up, right? This is, these, these things, believing these things is what, what makes you a Christian. Recognizing your sinful condition before God is an essential part of the gospel. We are rebels under God in the world that he has made. We don't love the right things. We don't do the right things. We don't value the right things. We don't think the right things. We have fallen short of God's perfect character. We are sinners, the Bible says. You can't deny it. There's no use denying it. And Jesus is our Savior, the one who came to die in our place on the cross for our sins. He bore the penalty that we owed. He died and he rose again. And and the Bible invites us all to turn to him and trust in him, recognizing the payment that he made for our sins. That's how you become a Christian, by turning to him. And when you do, you become a member of this new community with uh, love as its goal. So here's John's message in contrast to these false teachers. Three great themes of his letter. These letters are about the reality of Jesus, the centrality of love, and the necessity of obedience. These three themes. The reality of who Jesus is. He's God the Son, God in the flesh. The centrality of love in the life of his followers and the necessity of obeying his commands. We're going to come back to these three things over and over and over again. Now, in particular, what challenged these new believers, or these believers that John wrote to, is that the false teaching was coming from their former friends. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now... Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. These false teachers, they were part of the church. What do you do if the person who led you to Christ, who shared the gospel with you, suddenly turns and says, I don't believe that anymore. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. This is what's going on with these, these, these dear brothers and sisters. Uh, what these false teachers were teaching, frankly, in some ways, probably sounded better to the uh, recipients of this letter than what the apostles had taught them. It sounded, because it coincided with their culture, it sounded more familiar, it fit better, it was forward thinking, it was more progressive, it was on the right side of history, this false teaching. Here's a trend we see in John, that we see, first John, we see in church history that there have always been people interested in updating Christianity to make it match the times. They're well-meaning people. They're trying to save Christianity. I want to save Jesus. I want to save the teachings of Christianity. And in order to save them, we've got to change them. 
In the 20th century, the, may, the, the effort was made to save the teachings of Jesus by divorcing them from miracles. You know, we're scientific people. We're educated people. We can't believe that a fish swallowed a man. That's ridiculous. We shouldn't talk about that, really. Or that it, that it rained and rained and flooded the earth. We shouldn't really talk about that. And these, these miracles that Jesus did with leprosy and demons, we, should, we shouldn't just... Listen, no one's going to believe Jesus if you emphasize this. So we need to take those miracles out. We need to de-emphasize them. If we want to save Christianity, we have to make it more believable. The pressure that we're experiencing now is not to remove the miracles from the Bible. The pressure we're experiencing now is to remove what it says about sex from the Bible. It's impossible, so they say, to uphold these biblical standards. How can anyone in 2018 believe that sexual intimacy is reserved for one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage? Don't you understand all the colors and hues of human sexuality? No one will believe this. No one will turn to Jesus if, if you insist on upholding what this says. But if you change... We'll win people to Jesus. We'll save Christianity by changing what we, uh, what we say the Bible believes about human sexuality. What the 20th century church in the United States has revealed is that churches who change in order to save Christianity die. They wither and die. Now why? Why do they wither and die? Because in part they have nothing else to offer anyone. They have nothing different if, if, there, if we're in the church preaching the same message you hear outside of the church, what do we have left? Casseroles. That's all we've got left. That's <laughs> all we have. I've quoted Tim Keller before. Uh, he says, If the God you worship never confronts you, never disagrees with you, never challenges your culture, he's not the real God. You are merely worshiping a spiritualized version of yourself. Somewhat different vein, D.A. Carson quoted an old Scottish preacher who was being challenged about some of the progressive teachings of his day. And the Scottish preacher said, You say I am not with it, and my friend, I do not doubt it. But when I see what I'm not with, I'd rather be without it. So in John, there are these three countercultural values the reality of Jesus, the centrality of love, and the necessity of obedience. And in some ways, they function like tests. How do I know that I truly know God? There's these two competing visions for following Jesus faithfully. How do I know that I know God truly? And, and John writes about this, and he, he, he talks about, uh, well, it's the issue. Look at 1 John 5:13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. You, you can read this book and, and you can uh, talk about these uh, truths. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you believe, uh, are you living in love towards your brothers and sisters? Are you, are you obeying? Three tests almost, the truth test, the love test, and uh, the obedience test, the morality test. And John emphasizes all three of them. He emphasizes truth, love, and morality. If you have truth, but you have no love and morality, what are you? You're a hypocrite. If you have obedience, but you have love, no love or no truth, all you have is uh, 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 legalism. 
You have cold. Um, you have great rules, but you're cold. If you have love, but no truth or obedience, all you have is sentimentalism. You can whisper sweet nothings to everyone, but you'll have no resources to help them actually change. So all three of these things, truth, love, morality, obedience. 1 John is a book that's meant to help us grapple with the issue of assurance. Do I really know God? Do I truly know him? Some of you struggle with this. Do I, do I really know God? One of the things that we're going to do as we go through this book is we're going to have to grapple with John's style. John uses this style. It's the same style in the book of Proverbs. It's the same style that Jesus preached in. Uh, it is the same style found in the wisdom literature in the Bible. In wisdom literature in the Bible and in John and in Jesus' preaching and in James somewhat, uh, the world is divided into two groups. There is light and there is darkness. There is the wise and there is the foolish. There are the children of God and the children of the devil. And the differences between them are stark. And you are either in or you are out. Those are the only two options. There is no in between. You are in or you are out. You are light or you are dark. Look at, at 1 John 3, 6. John writes this way. He writes this way in 1 John 3, 6. No one lives in him, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You are either in or you are out. And, and if you are sinning, you are out. This is this contrast. The problem with that is that most of us live somewhere in between light and darkness. Um, was David, we talked about King David for a long time, didn't we? Was David in or out? Surely he was in. Surely he was in. God made those promises to him. Surely he was in, except for when he was committing murder and adultery, right? What do we do about that? Was Abraham in or out? Well, Abraham clearly was in. He had received the promises from God. He was the one who was justified by faith. Surely he was in. He was one of God's children. He's light, not darkness, except for when the fact that he was lying about his wife and putting those promises in jeopardy. Hmm. So we have these different styles in the Bible. There's John, and then there's the narrative passages of the Bible where we see people living and they live gray lives. So what do we do about that? We're going to have to wrestle with that. We're going to have to put this together as we read the gospel uh, of the letters of John. I want to finish by talking very briefly about the structure of this, this of First John. Uh, in brief, no one has ever figured out the structure of First John. Um, there's some structure here, but it's a mystery to us all. Um, some people have said that John was an old man when he wrote this letter and he rambles like it. I don't think that's very fair. Um, it, there, there is structure, but we haven't figured out what it is. One of the most popular views is that John is circular. He's got these three themes, uh, the, the reality of Jesus, the centrality of love, and the necessity of obedience, and then he keeps coming back to them over and over and over again. That's a very... Uh, um, a common way to view the book. This outline that I have on the back of this chart, I divided John into First John into two sections. God is light and then God is love. Well, it might be useful. Um, 
we're going to go through the book paragraph by paragraph, almost sentence by sentence, and, and each section that we come to is never the final word on the subject because John's going to come back and visit it again. I'll try not to repeat myself too much over the next few months. But I suppose if John thought we needed to hear it again, we need to hear it again. Right? How, do you know, how do you know in a world of competing visions for what it means to follow Jesus that you truly know God? We're going to spend the next several months with John figuring that out together. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this, these books that we're going to read together. Lord, they are uh, challenging, comforting, and wonderful books. I do thank you for this congregation and the attention that they will give, uh, the demand that they will set that we must have, you must tell us what the scriptures say. And so, Lord, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. I, as I, I study throughout the week, they, as they read the text, and then on Sunday mornings when we gather together, the Spirit, we need the Spirit to help us understand this book. Lord, I pray that in the next four or five months, you would develop in our congregation the sweet aroma of the love of God, that we would love one another more truthfully and more tenderly and more wisely. Father, I pray that you would also help us. There are some in our church who are weighed down by this pervasive doubt, and these terrible questions. Am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Would you help us as we look at First John to answer that question? That you would provide guidance for us? That we would have assurance before you that John wrote about? And Lord, do too, as we turn to this book, increase our devotion to the truths that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is our great Savior. He's one, he is the one whose coming we hope for. Help us, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close our time together this morning by singing the song In Christ Alone. I invite you to stand as we sing.